Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and Pop Culture Podcast coming to you from the not so solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. April showers bring Graham McMillan and I talking for hours as we spend a shockingly long time talking about below decks and the pleasures of reality television, plus the Craig McCracken created Netflix show Kid Cosmic, the long running manga Detective Conan, aka Case Closed, the past three years of Judge Dredd, some DC Marvel side eye, recent works by Tom King, and a surprisingly saucy discussion of Geiger issue number one by Jeff Johns and Gary Frank. As always, we welcome your comments at waitwhatpodcast.com, your questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeff Laster! Graham McMillan, howdy! Hello there, how are you? I'm good, except I've, I forgot the punchline to my joke, which kind of sucks. Wait, what's the setup to your joke? Well, the setup was when you go, Jeff Lester, and I'm like, Chloe Maviel, you know, so that was the joke, because the last time I did it. And, and then everyone would be disappointed. Yeah, everyone's like, ah, it's a Scottish guy again. Ah, it's just him. Ah, uh, I know, I know. I know, maybe we'll get lucky and Chloe will have her own podcast and we can come on as guests and <laughs> write her coattails we'll just, just talk about Below Decks the entire time. Oh yeah, that would be awesome. Uh, you saw the comment where someone was like, damn you, now I'm watching Below Decks. And yeah, was like, you're, you're welcome everyone. It's terrible. <laughs> terrible. Uh, and yeah, yeah, you're welcome. It, it's it's a trashy, trashy television show that I nonetheless adore. And yet, yeah, feel I shouldn't even say that because I feel adore is the wrong word. Com- was compelled to watch, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. There should be some sort of, um, you know, I was I was kind of happy when the term hate watch, you know, came in. And, and I'm yeah, not saying I, that you're hate watching it, right? you know. No, What's I, I see. I wouldn't say I was hate watching it either. Yeah, but like. It's it's like, like remember doom scrolling when doom scrolling became a term. Yes, yes it's like did. a television watch of version of doom scrolling. Mm. Where you're, you're like sort of going, these are these are terrible people. All like in various ways, all of these people are terrible people, and yet I have to keep watching. You know, they're making all the wrong decisions, but I have to see what happens when they make these decisions. Now. Do you think that it's because they're bad people that they make decisions that are watchable? Or is it the, you have to, as you know, I don't really watch a lot of reality TV. You don't watch reality TV. And and I feel in that sense, you're missing like part of the essential DNA of the show, which is people on reality TV shows go through such a weird heightened reality that it's either performative or reality has bent around them yeah and i genuinely don't know which it is mm-hmm. but you have people who like have known some for like someone for like two days and they will say without any shred of of sarcasm like i've never felt closer to anyone than i have to this person right right mm-hmm. or you know i like i trust this person with my life and they mean it right right mm-hmm and so there's some element of the reality bending that makes it so interesting to me. Right. What, do you have a take? I mean, I assume you're not 
a batch head or whatever they call no, people no, no, who no, watch The Bachelor. Yeah. But yeah. you, of course, saw the story about the, uh, the the dude who was The Bachelor a couple of seasons ago. I have no no idea. Like they run like two hundred seasons a year, but I, you know, it I came know out as gay. Something. I is that what it was? Yeah, he came out as gay. He came out as okay. Because all I know is that a lot of people were very upset. Yeah, apparently. Apparently, I mean, I don't know. I I. I saw I saw the trending on Twitter, clicked and read some interview story release with him. I don't know where he was kind of like, "Yeah, I'm really sorry that I was not able to." Did he come out as gay like on the show? No, no, that's it. it the show okay, it, it, it so ended it's not like you know midway yeah. through, like you know the rose ceremony. <laughs> no, like, no, he's like, I can't give any of your rose because yeah. I've realized that Brad, the cameraman. Is really interesting. Like it wasn't anything like that. Right? No, I. I mean, my my understanding is again simply from reading synopsis synopsis of uh, the the show. The, the what like synopsis? You, you said you've been reading sub Nazis, like like quasi Nazis. Is that what you mean? Yeah, the, it's it's like Nazis who subtweet. Okay. You know, they're they're okay, kind of true. like. Boy, I sure wish a certain race of people would stop lying about what happened oh, to them no. during World oh, War II. Yeah, let's 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 just not continue <laughs> this joke. I know it's horrible. It's really ghastly. Anyway, but it might be preferable to talking about The Bachelor. He apparently was on the show. There was um he had a very intense connection with like one woman who then got voted out and then when forced to choose between the two other women the final two women, he chose neither of them and actually, like, more or less semi-walked off the show and found the woman who'd been kicked off and was like... That, that's, see, again, that sounds that sounds like the ridiculously over-the-top, you know, all, again, almost performative right. television mm -hmm. that I think I would be like, well, this is ridiculous, but I have to keep watching. Right. One of the things that happened on... God, I honestly can't remember which Below Decks it was at this point. Like which season or anything, but there's there's a a bit where they have recurring characters, even in theory they don't, mm -hmm. uh, because in theory it's a new crew every season, mm. right? And you have recurring you have a recurring captain and a recurring um, chief stewardess, right? Uh -huh. And everyone else everyone else is new cast. Okay, and they have a season where there is a love affair between one of the deckhands and one of the stewardesses and. From the way the show is presented, it looks like the the stewardess is is like an amazingly emotionally invested in this relationship working, right? And the deckhand is not, right? And the deckhand is flirting with other women, and you know, it just just seems to be like emotionally disconnected. And from watching the season you're 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 left going because the the end of the season like going off together going on vacation together and you're left with them both saying like oh i hope it works but as a viewer of these shows you're left going it's not going to it's like it's going to end badly and it's probably going to end within like a week <laughs> right <laughs> right okay because there is like this level of cynicism you get mm -hmm. and then what happens is the following season the deckhand comes back and he's more or less like, you probably wondered what happened to the relationship. Well, I was all in, and I introduced her to my parents, and I flew her around the world, and she cheated on me. Wow. And 
that's just it because you're like you're like the immediate response is like that seems so unlike what we've just seen that it feels fictional right because it goes against every bit of quote-unquote characterization that you've seen from these people and part of it is of course it's reality television right mm-hmm, these things mm-hmm. are edited within a fucking inch of their lives yeah right uh, and for that matter they're also edited and broadcast before the subsequent things have happened obviously you know so the narrative that the producers pick can be utterly contradicted by the reality that follows you know so you the the producers are like well we be, being as cynical as we viewers goes well we don't like him but we do like her she seems really into him we think he's going to fuck her over. So we'll play those elements up. Mm-hmm. So you're watching a show and then you come to this. And then the reality turns out to be literally 180 degrees the, the opposite. Uh-huh. You know? But because of that, you are at once very aware of the the fakeness of the show. Mm-hmm. But also, because it is so different, mm-hmm. there's also an element of like, well... You know, I guess that's just what happens in the real world because you couldn't write this shit. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, it's very similar to, honestly, what was happening with politics for the last few years. Mm -hmm. Like, how many times did you see people say, you couldn't write this stuff in fiction? Yeah, right. Right. Like, this this just couldn't happen. Mm -hmm. And so, Below Decks, and, and, you know, I'm sure much of other reality TV, because, like, the other reality TV I watch is shit like, you know, Top Chef or The Great Pottery Throwdown or something like that, which are different formats of shows. They're literally, you know, they don't go home with the cast. They're literally like, it's a contest. Mm-hmm. You have a fucking contest. Right. You know, who's going to win the contest? The end. And mm-hmm. that's the, you know, that, it doesn't go any further. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure there's other shows like Below Decks that do this as well, which is, you know, you have, you have something that is at once unreal and hyper real. Right, right. I mean, I and that's the thing. I, in the way that everything about reality television seems inherently oxymoronic, it sort of seems like uh, those shows are both kind of too basic and too complex at the same time for me to really enjoy. Like I, yeah, it, it, it's a really weird thing because there's also there's also an element in in I mean honestly in all these shows and the competition shows as well where the narrative the producers want is someone is the villain, right? Right, and it get that gets really weirdly complicated. Yeah, <laughs> because you are aware that you know you're watching a fictionalized version of reality, but actually it's to sort of tie along with this. I, I, a common theme, a recurring theme in Below Decks is that one of the crew will have a partner off the ship and they will cheat on them with someone on the ship. Right? Uh Uh-huh. That's so fucking weird when you think about, what about that person's partner who's not on the ship? They're going to see this. Right. Do you know what I mean? Or in many occasions, you hear them on the phone. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Right? Right. And it's just, every time that happens, I'm always like, that's that's fucking weird. Because the people on the ship have agreed to this, right? Uh Uh-huh. But their partners haven't. Well, or I mean, for th- or for that matter, the person cheating is doing it 
on camera. Like, it seems all but impossible that it's not going to be found out. Like, what are they doing apart from... One of, one of, again, this sort of speaks to the, the idea of, like, reality bending for these people. Right. Is that uh, the first season that, that Chloe and I watched, a guy does that very thing. He cheats his girlfriend on camera, right? He talks in the, you know, the confessional format where he's talking to the, the, the camera. Mm-hmm. He talks about having the affair. And then he tells other people that the person who he's having an affair with is basically insane and making up when she talks about it. Oh, interesting. So he he's being candid in the confessional where everything is um, more or less the truth will come out, but then con- persists in deceiving everyone else. Yeah, yeah. So again, this is like that. Stuff's, that stuff's insane. We have this is. I'm sorry, people who are not interested in reality TV at all. Like this is clearly just where we're taking the podcast. But yeah, it's it's such a strange, strange thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about this uh, article that I read in online. So, of course, I read it in a, in a half-assed kind of way. And it, it sort of talked about uh, arguing and what is the purpose of arguing and essentially, you know, why is America in a quagmire? And, and part of the problem, uh, to the point of this article, was you would think that the point of uh, the evolutionary point of arguing would be that the society, the society that allows arguing, a lot, you know, allows the options to come out and for things to be decided on, and uh, essentially the person who is the most right wins the argument. Um, yeah, like like arguing actually solves something, right? And and the 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 theory postulated by uh, people looking at the psychology of how people argue and also how we respond to arguing um, is that it really doesn't have anything to do with that. Oh, this is awesome! This is the first time I maybe there's a bird. The cat across the way is like looking into my window very intently and is never like has always shown like the most extreme disinterest to me. Like I'll do jumping jacks and things to try and get its attention. And it just doesn't care. And of course, now that I said it, it turned away. Okay. Well, I did this. Out. Like the, 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 the cat was like, I want to know about human nature of arguing. So apparently evolutionarily speaking, it Arguing is not for the greater good, but for the individual good. And the speculation is that it is developed out of a person who tries to get out of doing things, essentially. You know, that the person, uh, you know, the, the belief was back in the day, you know, we all had tasks to do and... The person who was like, oh, I can't do it, no, and then you get in a big argument, etc. The the point being that, that if they can convince the most people, they get out of doing the thing, but they still reap the same benefits. Therefore, they have an advantage that they later apparently pass on to their offspring, etc., etc. So the point of, point, we think, most of us think that arguing is about, you know, uh, it, the thing it's about. Yeah. Engaging in a constructive dialogue, you know, uh, that sometimes moves into the realm of heated rhetoric 
to try and decide what is right in the situation and move forward for, you know, the culture, the group, for whoever's, uh, you know, for whom the, the, the discussion is germane. In fact, it's, it's really about um, persuasion. And I sometimes wonder if the appeal of reality TV is both for the participants and for the viewers opposite ends of the same thing. That the idea behind the addictiveness of reality television is to watch it to see if you can tell what is true and what is not true. You know, that you cr- you look at it trying to perceive, like knowing that what you're seeing is not real, but is not entirely fake. And the way in which you're, the enjoyment is the sifting through that and watching sort of your theories about what's real or not sort of build up and dissolve. And on the opposite side, both the, reality TV people who make it and the people who star in it are themselves doing a performative version of you know the point behind the arguing in other words the idea is can how many people can I convince despite the fact that everyone knows that I'm lying and or should be full of shit that's just it like there is there really is a point where, ironically, reality TV does blur reality because there is there is what you uh, what you think you're seeing, right? Or that's not true. There's what the viewer sees, but what the viewer sees is not actually real because it has been edited and packaged, but also it is being performed by people who know they're being filmed. That's right. You know, so it becomes this really weird thing where, you know, to call it reality is feels doing it a disservice. But at the same time, there are also uh, results. There are also implications that are very real. Right. Yeah. Like like for someone cheating on the girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's real. That Mm -hmm. happens. Right. You know. Um, for below decks, in theory, these are these people's jobs, right? So they could get fired, they could lose their job. Right. Even without that, it, one of the things that Chloe and I talked about, and I've talked to you, like, well, because this is not the first conversation you and I have had about below decks, but one of the things that's, that's that blows my mind about it is the the format is that these people are staff on private charters on on quote unquote super yachts, right? Uh, and the charters last like like two nights mm-hmm. okay so not that much time realistically 40 hours okay right right and these people get tipped not their not their wage their tips mm-hmm. are continually around fifteen hundred dollars each right which is mind-blowing right yeah which is which is genuinely mind-blowing but again when you're talking about like the reality the performative the the non-reality like it all you know the money they're getting is real is it? I mean, yeah, I suppose. But, like, remember when, you know, what, the Joe Millionaire show where it was, like, 
the dude presented himself as a millionaire and was not like i mean you know there, part- there is there is shenanigans going on with below decks so the, from what i have been able to sort of look at um the the yacht's owners quote unquote i'm pretty sure is bravo or whoever mm-hmm. is making the show for bravo right right and that only makes sense when you realize that you know every season there's always a the yacht's owners have decided that you should have a day off at this private country club where there'll be lots of alcohol, you know, and, <laughs> right. and it's like, there's no world where that is actually going to happen. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. But as far as I know, the guests are real and the tips are real. You actually see cash. Well, again, that could all be performed for the camera as well. Yeah. I mean, have you, have you like looked up the names of the, the rich people clients and, and confirmed I, that I they're real not. people uh, or... There is actually a limit to my, um, shall we call it fandom? Sure. Um, <laughs> and and that, I think that is it. I think right. that might be my limit. Well, yeah. Well, because in a way, I sort of feel like, you know, it's it's kind of that weird step too far. You know what I mean? And or it just might be, how do I put it? The, the attraction is in the perception. Now, I think there's a flip side of it, which is which is what was interesting to me because um, my I have family members uh, who watch reality TV um, and uh, in-laws who watch uh, reality TV, and I won't say which is which, but there are people who clearly watch it for the enjoyment of judging other people. Like, being in judgment of the people on the show is the draw. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, honestly, again, that's a significant draw for Below Decks. Mm-hmm. Right? mm-hmm. Um, in in, a multiple of, uh, in multiple ways. You can judge the guests, many of whom are, are shockingly divorced from, you know, at least my lived experience. Whether it's uh, in what they think they can get away with, in terms of interacting with people. Right. Or, or um, honestly, like, their lack of fucking common sense. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, it, it's it's you, it's very easy to judge those people. It's incredibly easy to judge those people. You can also judge the people working the boats. Because, like I said, they make really bad decisions on a regular basis, which creates the interest in television. Sure. You know, you have people making good decisions. You have a very boring show. Right. Because it's literally people doing their jobs for an hour and nothing else. You want people to make the bad decisions. You want the drama manufactured or otherwise. That's actually why people are tuning in. That's why people right. want to keep watching. Yeah. Right? So these shows invite you to judge. You know, they invite you to judge either if I had that much money, I wouldn't behave like that. Or, or I would. <laughs> if I had that much money, this is what I would do on my super yacht. Uh, I pray but, that that's what you've said. I'm sure it isn't, but I really pray to I, God that I, after the milkshake oh, episode, oh, you like turned to Chloe and said, "Like I'd totally be milkshake guy if I had that much money." More than once, um, we have turned to each other and been like, "We could never go in a super yacht because we could not deal with being weighted on hands and feet like these people are." <laughs> like both of us would be hyper nervous. Like would just be like, no, can we at least clean the table? Like, can we, can we like, like we don't really need, you know, service twenty four hours a day. This this is making us uncomfortable, right? Really seriously, um, 
but but you also you're invited to judge the people like I said making the bad decisions. You're invited to judge the people, uh, the 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 what they're doing on an interpersonal level, what they're doing on a professional level. Right. All of that is not there. You know, the difference between reality TV and documentary is that a documentary, I think, presents it in something approaching an objective fashion, and right. reality t- TV does not care about an objective fashion. Well, reality TV right. is trying to create is trying to create a narrative, and good reality TV does create a narrative. Yes. Yes. Um, so you so you do admit that that judgment is is part of the enjoyment or the appeal. Yes, yeah, oh, very much. It's mm-hmm. it's it's for you it, specifically. It, it, I mean, not yeah, in but the it, generic it's the appeal. Because again, mm-hmm. think about what I've said about the show. People mm-hmm. make bad decisions, or it's a show where you want to you end up thinking, let's kill all the rich people. Yeah, of course, judgment is part of it. Right. Which is you're like. You're like it only makes sense to kill all the rich people, though. That's not different. <laughs> yeah, that's that's just common sense, Graham. Just oh, common yeah, but, sense. But, but but like that's what I mean. It it uh, it's one of those shows that I can't. I honestly can't imagine people watching a lot of that show and not actually thinking there is actually something wrong with all of these people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like there is something about having that much money that dehumanizes you. I, I think I think I do think it's impossible for anyone who's not a sociopath to watch the to watch the show and not come away thinking that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yes, judgment very there. Yes, absolutely. Which is which you know um, good to know. Uh, like I said, it seems complicated to the point where to return to my earlier thing. Like you said. More closer to doom scrolling than to hate watching. Um, no, it is because it, it's it's car crash television, right? Mm-hmm. Where where the 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 appeal, the 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 thing that brings you back, the thing mm-hmm. that gets you to click next episode, is that you're just like, oh, oh no, <laughs> right, right, like. No, fucking not. That that's that's terrible. Like, I want to see how this terrible thing happens. Well, you know, I I have to say for myself, like I'm Mister, like oh no, reality TV. Like that's you know only true. <laughs> it's only true for the the majority of the 21st century, I guess. But you know, I this is my other thing. Is is I I part of why I don't. I think get into some of these things is I I don't think it was you as well, but I do have a friend who's watched 36 seasons of love Island, you know, yeah, that, that, that is not me. Yeah. Okay. And I'm pretty sure and aware part of that is the appeal of like the sort of the nubile flesh. And, and so all of which is to say when I was watching, say real world or road rules or any of MTV's, um, you know, sort of nascent reality TV stuff, definitely usually ended up developing a crush on some character on the show and watching because of that. Um, which is, which is, uh, kind of a different approach thing altogether but was interesting to me how much it was the case in a way where I don't think 
I think it's incredibly rare for me to watch quote-unquote real TV and have crushes on characters the same way. It's part of the reason why as much as I'm absolutely 100% fascinated by fandom, I just can't ever figure any way into it. Yeah, because I'm just like, I don't... the, The idea of... Shipping fictional characters just doesn't make sense. And I mean, even when there is like an attractive character, like, uh, and this is this is probably a good example of how long it's been. It's like I probably had a crush of some kind on Dana Scully from the X Files, you know, from whatever point in the 90s to, I think, probably still the 90s, you know? And then after that, I'm like, You're well, like, yeah. My crush Julian Anderson. We'll is, see, is... exactly, yeah. But but even still, the, the how do I put it? It still felt different. Like, my appreciation of Julian Anderson is very much of the, that is a very attractive person that I like seeing move and talk and do anything, you know? But I'm never, like... Uh, you know, if I ever bumped into Jillian Anderson, I bet I could impress her <laughs> with my, you know, unique knowledge of 70s Marvel publishing history. And, um, you know, I, I, whereas I think that there there are inevitably times during, well, no, maybe now that I think about it, I'm like, oh, it was kind of the same period. I'm like, maybe I just haven't crushed on people in the 21st century on television. Maybe I just... I got with Edie and stopped watching. I watch so little TV now. You know. I, 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 okay, I have to ask: Is the reason you keep saying television? Like, are you crushing on less people in movies? Well, I mean, I no. I well, I don't think so. I guess what I'm saying is, no, it's just it's just odd to me that you keep saying on television. Oh well, I think that's because television is the only place where you can sort of quote unquote tune in and see characters of both fictional and non-fictional stripes like apart from the up series um oh there's... so you're, you're talking about you're talking about the idea of, of like a line gets blurred yeah for me present, yeah. presents the, in mm-hmm. theory non-fiction and fiction right exactly so so my thing of talking about on television Part of that is, yeah, no, I mean, maybe it makes it sound more weird, but it's just kind of the idea of, like, I can be totally into a certain character in a movie, but, you know, even today with the way that they crank out franchises, I'm always like, eh, you know what I mean? Like, you're never necessarily going to see that person again. And even if you do, like, it's two or three years down the road. It's There's other reasons why you're probably going to see the film, you know, apart from the idea of, like, wow, I sure love uh, what was what was Eva Langoria's character in Casino Royale. Um, I'm literally like, Eva Langoria was in Casino Royale? Is it isn't isn't that it? Isn't oh that no Eva no Green? no 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 it's it's Eva Green sorry <laughs> Eva Langoria is such a good name it should not be uh, anyway yeah Eva Green what what did you play like cinnamon honey bun uh, the internet is going bump? to tell me if you give me two seconds I I prefer uh, guessing called, my phrase she was Vesper Lind Vesper Lind yeah back 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 when Fleming Ian Fleming was like hmm. 
classy and subtle, not booby McJugjug from my later Bond novels. Uh, yeah, Vesper Lind. Like, Vesper Lind, even that, I was... Eh, I mean, I guess maybe if I was, you know... Uh, not straight, I would be like, oh yeah, I'm always back for more Bond. Can't get enough of that Bond. And I mean, I you know, it's just different from my crush on Julie from real world, like, I don't even remember what season, right? And it was... And that's, season one. Is it season one? Oh, God, I, Jeff. The reason I'm saying that is it's the one that they're doing their union season of right now. Oh, Lord, Jeff. How basic can you be? Jesus Christ. Uh, I, and I can tell you because I watched the first episode of the reunion and then didn't watch any further. Not only because the first episode was kind of boring, but also because, like, just basically shit happens and I got distracted. One of the things that was so weird about watching the reunion uh-huh. is seeing them like 29 years later. Yeah, see, that's the part where I'd want to do it almost just for that, frankly, you know? Like, I'm just like... Because, I mean, I, I, I would be lying if I said that I had actually thought about any of those people in the intervening years. But I also remember watching that show with my mother... Wow. Because it was really into it, and both of us basically treated it like a serious documentary. Right, right. And one of the things they talk about, in the, at least in the first episode of the reunion, is the idea that they didn't know what the show was when mm-hmm. they agreed to do it. Mm-hmm. They, they were like, oh, it's, so it's a, it's a fly-on-the-wall documentary. But also, all of them seemed to think that the documentary was about them, and everyone else was, was a supporting character. <laughs> Which is kind of interesting. That's really right? funny, yeah. Because well, but it kind of makes sense. Well, it does make sense. Because yeah. The real world was uh, 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 was something different, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and before that, you had you did have documentaries kind of focused on like maybe one or two people, but not on the idea that there's like six of them living together and they are all equally important. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, especially for Americans, a very hard idea to wrap our brains around. It's it's funny though because you do get at least a couple of people in the first episode being like, yeah, my agent or my so and so basically said you should do this. It's a documentary about you that will increase your your profile. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, we had no idea what we were getting into. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. It's interesting. Anywho, uh, yeah, wow, a surprisingly long digressive uh, reality TV hole. Uh, that we just... Um... Yeah, I, I'm sorry everyone who thought that we were comic podcasts. Apparently we talked about reality TV for half an hour. Seriously, our slow werewolf-like metamorphosis into a Below Decks podcast uh, continues, like, w- horribly and inexorably, so... I, I should tell you that um, we have finished Below Decks. We, uh-huh. have, we have gone through all the episodes that are available for free on Peacock, and we are not willing to pay for it. <laughs> Oh, oh, well, that's um, good. How many more seasons are there? There's apparently one more season of each show, and there's two shows. The, there is the, a third show that I honestly have no interest in. Wait. Um, a third Below Decks or a third reality yes, there's, show? there's Below Decks, and there's something called Below Decks Mediterranean, which is literally just Below Decks on a different boat. Right. Um, And then there's something called Below Decks Sailing yacht i think or sailing vessel or something like that and honestly <laughs> i have no interest in that because it's like if nothing else the name just sounds incredibly boring <laughs> yeah for sure for sure i actually wouldn't it be fabulous at one point i did start fantasizing about how i was gonna like 
come back uh, on our next podcast and say that I had uh, gone, started watching based on your guys' recommendation and then start describing old Love Boat episodes and see how long <laughs> it was before you caught on. Um, and I'm sure it would have happened that, right that, away. That would have been wonderful, and I kind of wish you'd done that. <laughs> uh, no, but, but we have we have finished that, and now uh, it's back to the Great Pottery Throwdown, which is an entirely different type of show, but again, a reality show. Right, reality show and the competition shows, uh, and then there's a whole sort of competition slash cooperative show. I, I, I'm sure we. Well, that's just it. it. The Great Butters Road is very like Great British Bake Off, which is to say, like it's a really nice competition. Right. You know, you know the the cliche is like I didn't come here to make friends; I came here to win. Though, like those shows are very much like I came here to make friends. <laughs> <laughs> winning would be nice, but I came here to make friends. Oh, uh, I mean, yeah, exactly. I, I should say uh, something else we've been watching, and something I have actually managed to talk to you about. I uh, meant to talk to you about rather is have you and the likelihood of this is really low, but I want to ask anyway. Are you aware of a Netflix cartoon called Kid Cosmic? Uh, <laughs> I first heard of it thanks to Chloe tagging me in a tweet. Yes. Have you watched it? No. No, I haven't. Okay. Kid Cosmic is created by Craig McCracken, who is the guy who did Powerpuff Girls. Ah. Oh, wow. Okay. He also did Foster's Home for Imagine Friends. He did Dexter Laboratory. Right? Kid Cosmic feels like a mashup of every pop culture thing. <laughs> hmm. Turned into a superhero show for kids. And it's great. Huh. It is shameless in the way it steals things. Genuinely shameless. For example, the origin of Kid Cosmic's power rings is Green Lantern's origin. Wow. Like, straight up. Straight up is Green Lantern's origin. The animation style is very influenced by Jamie Hewlett's Gorilla's work. Huh. Right? They, they at one point, literally show... Uh, um, a Captain Atom cover from the 60s. Really? Wow. Yeah, straight up. Straight up show it. Hmm. Um, I think, in part because I think they think they're showing um, work that is the public domain, and that's not. And I think that's a mistake, to be honest. Because <laughs> they show a bunch of comics which are in public domain, and then they show that, and I was like, that, no, someone owns that one. <laughs> like, are you trying to get pissed off DC? Because you're doing a really good job. Hmm. Um, but it's it's kind of fucking great. Hmm. It's it's a genuine joy of a show, and a really good superhero story for kids. Uh, which is to say, it works as a kid story, right? But it's also very much a morality play, right? Without being preachy, and honestly, quite subtly a morality play. Huh? Really? Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of great, and like, I, and the reason I'm saying this is, Jeff, you should watch it. I think you might actually like it. <laughs> I, you know, I have to say, you're kind of selling me on it. Uh, the setup is there's a, a sort of a, a a town in the middle of nowhere in in southwest US, and and when I say a town, it's like a junkyard and a diner, and that's it. And there's a kid who lives there who basically is like, you know, 12 and is just excited by everything. And he comes across, for all intents and purposes, like the Infinity Gems. Uh-huh. 
Um, but because he reads comics, he's like, oh, they're power rings. And so he glues them to, to like, nuts. Like, like nuts and bolt nuts. Wow. And starts wearing them. <laughs> That's great. Um, but he can only get one to work. And the others end up in the hands of his friends. Mm. Who have to deal with alien invasions. Like, actual alien invasions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his friends are, like, the waitress at the local diner who just wants to leave the town. The old man who looks after him, Papa G, who is the one that Chloe tagged you about. Mm-hmm. Um, a four-year-old girl who gets the power to become really big. Mm-hmm. Like, she basically like a giant man's power. And she's like, not little! Which, for some reason, I find ridiculously charming. <laughs> um, and a cat who gains the ability to see the future. Holy smokes. The cat is called Tuna Sandwich, which is a great name for a cat. Yes. Uh, but he, he becomes a precognitive cat. <laughs> um, oh. And, like, other things happen. Like, there's there's a whole sort of second half to the show and to the plot that is that really is where the morality show stuff kicks in. And I don't want to say it because I don't want to ruin it because I do want you to watch the show. Okay. But even before it gets there, it's this weird, fun superhero story that really does work for kids, but also just works really well as a superhero story and works as a morality play. Hmm. It's this thing where I was like, well, shit, this is great. Like, why are people not telling stories like this when mm-hmm. superheroes are still like a massive part of culture, right? Of, of of like of dominant pop culture? Why are more people not doing stuff like this? Honestly, why isn't Marvel and DC doing stuff like this? Yes. Right, which I think is is a is a really good question. It's funny that you mentioned that because uh, I ended up reading. I don't even think I made it through the first volume, but um, the the first volume of Case Closed, there was a um, quote unquote big sale on Comicsology, and I had been I was feeling sort of flush with cash and kind of like, you know, in need of something a little different and aware that Case Closed, which is a very long-running detective manga series from uh, Gosho Aoyama, uh, which has been running in Shonen Sunday since 1994 and has been collected into 98 volumes. It's 98. 98. It is. It is a wow. hugely popular, hugely successful, and hugely long-running uh, manga and incredibly successful anime series about um, essentially the, it's the the world's someone who wants to be the world's greatest detective. And when you see him at the start of the series, he is, it's funny, I assumed knowing the premise that I thought that he was going to be like a full-grown adult. But he is, in fact, a high schooler, like a junior in high school who is a clever, you know, amateur detective who worships uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes and wants to be a... um, you know, uh, basically the world's greatest detective. In the course of investigating suspicious characters, uh, he is caught. They try to kill him by poisoning him with this entirely 
experimental poison that they have that has not been tested on humans and they're like what the hell have we got to lose we're trying to kill this kid anyway so he doesn't know anything about us the poison does not kill him but rather reverts him to uh like how old is he supposed to be like eight years old essentially so so he's he's like he's like now a little kid like how how old is he supposed to they say in the plot uh, blah 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 um transforms him into a child yeah and it, they say how old he is but he's so he's super young which i think to me if it had been like a middle-aged sherlock holmes character who had been cast back into the body of a kid i was like huh and the idea that he's actually a te- teenage whiz detective and so he has to solve crimes but you know since he is basically a, a cute kid, no one will listen to him. No one will give him the time of day. And so he has to not only solve the crimes, but he has to figure out how to get the adults to pay attention to him slash trick the various oafish detectives or police people to notice the clues that they keep overlooking. So it's kind of a you know twi- clever twist within a clever twist. But the thing that is really interesting to me is the first two episodes bite so hard from Silver Age uh, superhero stuff. Because, so what happens is he is poisoned by um, these two shadowy figures, one of which he calls the Man in Black. And the Man in Black runs off. So when he comes back as a kid, he's like, he wants to track down the man in black. And so he, part of his incent, part of why he keeps taking on cases is he keeps hearing about things that lead him. It's very, both the fugitive, but I also, you know, of course thought of dead man, which bit that whole thing very strongly. Sure. And then the crazy thing is, is he's got a, you know, his heat since he was a high schooler, he was allowed to live alone because his father, who was a, a, an award-winning mystery novelist and uh, is in America with his wife writing a book, so he doesn't have parents to worry about him. He has his love interest, who is a fellow high schooler, whose father is an inept private eye. And one of his closest friends is an eccentric scientific genius slash next door neighbor who's the only person who believes him will believe him that he's actually um you know the the teen turned into an eight-year-old and what he keeps saying is is like you've got to hide your identity because if they find out that you're still alive they'll come back and finish the job so you've got to find them before they find you but you don't want them knowing that you're still around so so he takes on a pseudonym um and then of course as a little kid his love interest like sort of immediately like takes him in and treats him like a little brother and one of the things that she tells him is she confesses the fact that she is in fact in love with him the teenager you know because they were compatriots but they kind of had that kind of sparring i'll never admit to liking you and etc so he's got a secret identity he's got an arch nemesis that he's got to try and track down like and and i really was i was like wow this is hugely and i mean 
what's what's amazing about it is those are things that I see the superhero DNA in, but the rest of the series is so not like that. You know, it's all it's like locked room mysteries and people showing up where, you know, a stalker is dead in the pop idol's uh, apartment. You know, was it her? Was it her manager? Or was it this third person who shows up? Like, you know, and each character, each, you know, the police detective, the inept PI, and and Conan, um, which is the name that he takes for himself, is Conan Itogawa. So he basically takes the, the, the names of the, the two most famous uh, mystery writers you know, quote unquote, in the world slash Japan. And, um, and you know, the each sort of thing. So it's him solving mysteries. Some, some of them are multi-part, but I was like, right. On the one hand, this is so superhero. And on the other hand, it just goes a ton of other places very early. And of course, you know, apparently it's a formula that is just a gold mine. Apparently, um, if, if Wikipedia is to be believed, uh, Detective Conan, or Case Closed, as it's called here, and I hope it's called Detective Conan over in Japan, came out during the period um, after kind of Japan's economy crashed and things, among the other things that people were dealing with were um, there was a huge surge in teen crime. So probably a bunch of youth who had gone from feeling like, you know, their their futures were made for them, having no future as Japan crashed out and, and not being sustained in any way. Um, there was this heavy wave of teen crime, and a lot of people feel that part of why Detective Conan ended up striking a chord and being so successful is he starts off as a genuine teenager do-gooder and then becomes a younger kid, but is even more obsessively, um, you know, trying to solve crimes and trying to do quote-unquote good. So, um, so again, very interesting, and there's ways in which you can, you know, there's so much stuff with superheroes where you would think if they just took that and they removed that and then added this and then threw in a dash of that, you would have something that would appeal to a modern audience that would not seem in any way like a quote unquote superhero, but still have all of the appeal. Kind of like you said with, with Kid Cosmic. And some of that really, I think with Case Closed and Kid Cosmic sounds like um, there's there's so much fun to it there's so much goofiness to it you know again part of there's so many things that that are great about spider-man into the spider-verse but one of the things that really makes it very exceptional is is the fact that it is such a it's such a good movie but it's a you know it's a fun movie um and yeah, yeah, exactly. in, in ways that people who you don't you don't have to be a superhero fan to enjoy it, and the but the you know the more you are, the deeper it goes, et cetera, et cetera, blah blah blah. Um, yakety yak! I feel like there were there, there were I, a couple I, of okay. different transitions I, I have, there. But I have yes, to ask. Mm-hmm. I have to ask. You have just started reading Case Closed, right? Yes, literally. Yeah. So you cannot answer the the question I have, which is if it's been going on for almost a hundred volumes, surely at some point the fact that this kid is solving all these crimes must have been 
revealed, right? Uh, I have, I, yeah, I don't so know. Other people must have found that out. Like, I'm, I'm now like weirdly, weirdly focused on like this one piece of the mythology right. where I'm like, but come on. Wait, which part? Oh, that that he's the one who's solving them, not just tricking the that, adults. That nobody into... knows that this kid is solving these murders. I yeah, I don't know. You would think. I mean, you would think. Right? Yeah, but again, but... maybe. But you know, you you we say that, but maybe that's just thinking with a, a Western comic side, right? Because I feel that if there had been, you know, a hundred issues of you know, case closed, the American series. Mm-hmm. There would have been at least two everything you know is wrong storylines in there. Uh, you know, yeah. or, or big status quo change storylines. Well, but, but, are, but aren't we really talking but, about comics within a relatively sh- short time frame? You know what I mean? Like, no, if there's a hundred issues, that's almost ten years, right? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, but yeah. but but with Marvel, you had. The illusion of change, but I mean, you know, Superman, Batman, all that's look how look, you know those. Yeah, look how, yes, yeah, yeah, right. Well, well, the other thing I was going to say is um, one of the things I've been reading this week is I've been reading years worth of Judge Dredd, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm not exaggerating. I mm-hmm. have read uh, 2018, 2019, 2020, and uh, all the 2021s, uh, 2080 episodes of Dredd. Wow, this week. Uh, in part because I realized I'd really fallen behind, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, I, I should I should just go back and and read a chunk of it." And so I read twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one. I was like, "I'm just really fucking enjoying this shit. Like, I'm really really into it. I'm really right. really enjoying this. Mm-hmm. I want to go back and read a couple more." So it sounds as if you know I was like, "I'm reading three and a half years of dread." That wasn't right. my intent when I said out at all. <laughs> um, For a change, but one of the things that that. I, I became aware of a couple of things. One, you realize that the the problems plaguing Dread as a strip in the jokes we're reading are clearly solved at some point. Mm. Right. Like right other writers who aren't Wagner figure out how to do Dread. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and how to how to get like the, the tonal variations and honestly like the the, the, the tight tonal uh, nuances of dread. Other writers yeah. work out how to do that, right? You know, which you know, in a way, of course they do. Dread is almost you know fifty years old at this point, right? Like you would, you would hope, like other writers have been writing dread, I should say, for thirty years. Yes, right. I would hope that they would work it out by now. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is, with the exception of there's a chief judge change. Mm-hmm. There really isn't significant status quo change in those three and a half years worth of comics. Well, so that whole like death o dread stuff was that all pre twenty eighteen then? That, yeah, that was that was that was a while ago. Yeah. Oh, okay. See, I have no sense of time anymore. So, huh? So, so judge change, but no real status quo changes, but still a more because. Because they still, at least from when I remember, and again, this has got to be at this point, well, a decade or more, uh, approximately, they would tell dread stories, and it would be kind of one-off, one-off, two or three progs, one-off, one-off, you know, two or three part prog, one-off, and then maybe a 
big storyline, you know, and then you'd be, it would go you'd back basically to being... get like a big storyline a year. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, but the big quote unquote big storylines are are work in such a way that they are big storylines, but also they don't necessarily change the status quo. Right. Right. Or they change the status quo in such a way that they're resolving a long running storyline as opposed to like changing Mega City One. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? So within the within the this the stretch of, of stories, the small house is in there. Which is a big deal. But it's a big deal that is only really a big deal if you've been paying attention to what Rob Williams has been doing to the to the the character up to that. And honestly, not even the character as much as supporting characters. Right? Mm-hmm. Or you get um like Wagner is still doing mechanismal stuff through this. Wow, that's amazing. Uh and he's doing like really fucking great things with the mechanism idea. Like really good stuff with the mechanism idea. Mm-hmm. Um I, I pardon me just wants to like spoil it for you, but but I won't. Boo. Uh, okay, I will. Um, no, that, what part of boo <laughs> was? Ah. Um, no, but he's you know, and so that pays off again. Plots have been going on for thirty years, mm-hmm. but doesn't really make a drastic shift, mm-hmm. or. Uh, you know, there, there's there there are things that mm, that land really well. There are things that are done, you know, incredibly well. Uh, in in that three and a half year span, Rob Williams and Chris Weston have a recurring threat that is in like a one part story, then a two part story, then a one part story, and then the, their big story comes up. Mm-hmm. And so when the big story comes up, it's great, mm-hmm. and you've mm-hmm. had the build up, and you feel it, and it works. But again, it's not a status quo shift, right? Right. Well, you know, so it's funny because uh, one of the things that uh, has been really illuminating for me about reading Dread via Drock is that, how do I put it, that the mega progs that are done, particularly the ones by Wagner and Grant, um, for the most part, to me, there's a it, it's it, the Megaprog is sort of less about the idea of the status quo getting changed and more about um, the idea that the story is just allowed to be off the hook. You know what I mean? Like you could I feel like a lot of the Megaprogs could be done in say four parts three parts six parts you know even two parts it's just they their nature has a yes and yes and yes and you know what i mean like it it's it when you get something like magruder finally uh you know arrests dread and you know he throw he throws down his badge, and she you know says like you're going to Titan, like that could have you know with Wagner he could have turned around and resolved that in one more prog if he wanted. Where like I don't know, yeah. Magruder has a heart attack and Volt takes over, and then pardons Dread, you know, or or it could just go. I mean, the fact that it ends up it could, going it where could it have does, gone to Titan, 
right? Yeah, exactly. Dread never right. goes to Titan. And that is such a big old juicy hook that it's kind of great in a way that, that Wagner is like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Like I'm, I'm going to go. The whole point is to put him and Magruder and other characters on and tell this whole story of, you know, that among other things, uh, ties the theory of law and justice to colonialism, you know, and, and the, the needs of the empire. And, you know, there's a, what I, part of what I adore about Wagner is, um, is how much you never necessarily know where he's going. And so for me, some of the fun of the really big megaprox is like the, holy shit, this can go anywhere, you know, unless they get bored and it's the Judd Child saga, and the, in which case it's it's going to wrap up before it ever really kind of starts to start. So, you know. What are you going to do? Just wait for just wait for the judge child to come back, and you'll be like, "What?" But um, you know, it, what's funny is, I think there's two types of of mega epic, right? Right. There is the the ones that I think are are you know when you think of the early mega epics, you think of uh, Judge Child, or you think of Cursed Earth, um, or even the Apocalypse War for that matter, um, which are essentially like done in once over 26 weeks right they're 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 threats or or concepts that come up at the first in the first chapter of that story and are resolved by the last chapter of that story Mm, yeah more or less right Mm -hmm. uh and then you have you have other ones like i i think necropolis is one of these um to the extent oz is as well where it's dealing with pre-existing concepts or characters Yes, and it does something that alters the characters in a way that is ongoing afterwards. Hmm. Okay. Right, the biggest one of these, I think, is Day of Chaos, which I don't think we're going to get to before Drock finishes. Although I think we'll end up doing it as like a standalone thing. Right, Day of Chaos is like forty episodes long. Wow, and it's it just fucks Mega City One up. Right. It's the thing that they've always teased and never did, except then they did it. Poof, which is the completely fuck mega city one up um and that's like that that's a very dramatic very clear like okay everything changes the mega epics that we've seen in the last few years have been things like small house or or um end of days from just just like i think the end of last year which are some weird hybrid of the two, right? Mm. That's not true. End of Days was very old school in that it literally was something that started in the first episode and ended in the last. Mm-hmm. Um, but like Small House is pulling threads from Trifecta. It's pulling threads from William's earlier low life. You know, it's actually pulling threads from the Apocalypse War in the end. You know? Um, and the aftermath is is simultaneously not really much on Dread, but a lot on Mega City 1 and those around Dread. Hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, because there are things said and things happening to people in that in that strip that, you know, like people die in the small house. Right. You know? But it's supporting characters. And it's supporting characters that Williams had been using, but the other char- the other writers hadn't been using. 
Right. So it's easy enough to ignore it if you want, mm-hmm. but it's also a big deal, if, again, if you've been paying attention. Right. If you're a fan of what Williams has been doing, then it's a really big deal. Right? Mm-hmm. Same with control. Control, again, uh, is something that is only a resolution if you've been paying attention to the earlier chapters that Williams had done. And control was was again a weird mix of of the old of the two forms of epic in part because all of control including like the earlier chapters mm-hmm. the standalone chapters from earlier were made by Rob Williams and Chris Wesson right and so the collection reads great uh, yeah right like the consistency but it's of also, that's be it's awesome. also stories that have been told across like a, a year and a half span Right, and when you read it again, when you read the collection, it feels like it's it feels like a done in one. It feels like it's a compressed story. Right, but they have been laying the groundwork for this for months by the time Control came about. And again, Control kills someone off, but it's someone that only Williams had been writing. Mm-hmm. So if you're not a fan of Rob Williams' writing, or you've not really been reading Rob Williams' writing, it's a death, and it's a death that's clearly important to the story, but you don't get the impact that you have if you've been following William's writing. If you're like, no, I like Ken Neiman's writing, or I like Michael Carroll's writing, I don't really like Rob Williams, the death won't have the same impact. Right? So it's, it's a weird thing. It, the, the way that the, the quote-unquote big stories mm-hmm. are structured now manage to have the payoff and also leave other things untouched. You know, one of the things that is obvious from reading the last few years of Dread is, and honestly, it was it's been obvious for like at least a decade, if not before. There are multiple recurring writers on Dread, right? Wagner appears rarely, but does drop in now and again. But you've got Michael Carroll, you've got Ken Neiman, you've got Rory McConville, you've got uh, Rob Williams, blah blah blah, and each of them has their own supporting cast. Ah, uh, and each of them has their own recurring characters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and so a if you read Dread as a whole, the Meg City One seems much bigger. Yeah, that makes sense. You, to you me. have you have multiple groups of recurring characters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have supporting casts for essentially four different series. Right, but it also means that like Neiman can use Noam Chimpsky, who is a, a chimp. He's a chimp vigilante in Meg City One. Definitely. Wow. Um, and he like, and he, but only he uses that character, right? Like that, you know. The other writers don't use that character, right? Uh, or, or you know, there's, there's, there's like Williams has Williams has a cast at this point. Williams has basically inherited like Judge Giant mm. as a character, right? So Williams used Giant, but Giant wouldn't really appear in any other writer's stories. No. You know, and. Sorry. Oh, sorry. The, the, one of the things I'm curious about is uh, I know that Dread appears in 2000 AD and also Magazine. But for the most part, you know, it's those two titles, of course. Dread's only one story in each of those books. They're both anthologies in that sense. Yeah. Do you think that... In that sense, Dread is aided by having, um, like you said, you know, 
each writer has their own supporting cast, and so the book Mega City One feels bigger. But because it's also being um, published sequentially rather than contemporaneously, like you know, I with very few exceptions, I would say for the most part, you've got American superheroes who have multiple titles. And all it really kind of gives you the feeling of is, you know, that the people publishing are trying to cash in on the character five different ways. You know what I mean? Like, it's never like, oh, thank goodness, this book is, you know, a nuanced take on Batman's supporting cast. And this book is a, you know, nuanced take on the the police officers of Gotham and how they interact with Batman. And, you know, you'll have that for slight periods or, you know, with the sort of the weekly Superman where, you know, Superman adventures of Superman and action all had different quote unquote mission statements. And so you could read each one, you know, and they would have uh, different focuses, but frequently, at least to me, sometimes it just feels like, Oh, this is, you know, Wolverine comic number three, as opposed to be, you know, Wolverine comic number two, as opposed to Wolverine comic sure, number sure. one, yeah. right? Yeah. I got you. Yeah. Do you think that, do you think that Dread would read differently slash worse if these were all four Judge Dread titles each coming out, uh, it, you know, would, a different week of the month? Read, it would definitely read differently. Um, and I think it would read worse in large part because, A, I think Dread's variety is one of its biggest strengths. Right. Especially now where, to be honest, all of the regular writers of Dread right now are writing at a level that is beyond what we're seeing in the drugs. Mm-hmm. Oh, I would. Right? Yeah, I would hope so, like you said. Like, like, we're, yeah. like we're, we're not just – like, they're, they're – it feels a bit, maybe a bit much to say like they're up there with Wagner. Like I would honestly say that Rob Williams is up there with Wagner in all seriousness. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but you know, I, I'm I'm not sure I'd, I'd go that far for others. But but all of this, so it's it's all it's all high quality. Like it's not like you get a complete, you know, dog of a strip the same way that you're getting in the drugs anymore. Right. Um. But also. One of the things that is its strength is that you don't necessarily know who you is going to be writing, who is going to be drawing. Yes, right? mm. and it's not like it's a regular thing where it's like, well, every month you'll get one Rob Williams strip, one Michael Carroll strip, one Rory McConnell strip, one Ken Neiman strip. Right. Right. For example, last year, for basically the la- the back half of the year, Rob Williams was writing Dread. It wasn't all end of days. Right. But he was like it was end of days, and then he wrote like or wrote or co-wrote because Arthur Wyatt co-wrote the uh, a great a, a fucking great epilogue, um, in there. But but like if you know for the last half of the year, basically it was the Rob Williams show, and that's good because it almost feels like strips are given time to percolate. And, yes, and you know are published when they're ready, as opposed to they're published because they meet the deadline. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I think that's a real benefit. I think that's a, a significant benefit that you come from having, you know, I don't want to say writer's room approach, but I kind of do. Yeah. No. Uh, well, a writer's room approach, but I think there was also um, 
again, during that very brief period where I was reading 2000 AD every week, uh, you know, I assume Matt Smith is still editing and had him back yeah. then. And, you know, the there was definitely that sense of the air traffic control problem had gotten sorted. You know, when yes. you when yeah. you look through the, the histories of 2000 AD, you always talk, you hear about the editors, you know, well into the 90s being like, yeah, suddenly you just turn and blink and you're completely either overwhelmed with shit or you start something and then something goes wrong and you've got no plan B. And it sort of sounds like, if nothing else, those things have been ironed out. So when I was reading 2000 AD, I know exactly what you mean. You never knew what you were going to get, but nothing ever really felt... um, super slapdash thrown together like there were people who seemed to be better or worse or you know maybe there were ways in which it was like eh, this person managed to you know pitch and sell a fatty story but then you know it's clear they knew the dread fatty history but they're not necessarily the best writer or whatever and it just ends up being but it's never that kind of thing of like why does this look like it was drawn on, you know, in crayon at like 6 a.m.? And why is it the conclusion to one of John Wagner's otherwise best stories, you know? Yeah, yeah, right. So you just don't, it's great that that is not no longer happening with 2000 AD. It is, but it's also, like, I do think there's an incredible value to the idea of instead of someone, like a, a great writer, a writer you really enjoy basically having to hit a deadline and so sometimes phoning it in or or just missing. Do you know what I mean? Like right. almost getting to what they're trying to do but not mm-hmm. because they don't have time for that last rewrite. There's something great about the idea of, like these stories are going to appear when they're done. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like that do you that you know, it, sure, it's sad that, you know, me as a big Michael Carroll fan is not going to get Michael Carroll once a month. But it does mean when Michael Carroll shows up, it's going to be something great. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's something that his, his, uh, his, like, I'd love, I'd love, it. weirdly enough, it's reminiscent of, to me, like the Julie Schwartz Superman days. You know, you didn't, you never knew if you're getting Kurt Swan or you're getting Elliot Magan or, or, you know, who was writing? I mean, it was obviously going to be. Uh, sorry, uh, it was always going to be Kurt Swan drawing, but you know, it could be Carrie Bates, mm. it could be Elliot Magan, right? You know, mm-hmm. and 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 it, again, it was like you know, what story's ready? <laughs> and there's something about that that I like. Mm-hmm. You know, I I like the idea that you that it's not a problem to crowdsource the writing of a long running character. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there are people who will vehemently disagree with me but you know for all that james tynan has a, a clear plan for his batman books if there's a while where he's like ah you know what i've got to concentrate on you know one of my seven creator-owned books mm-hmm. um and so fuck it like josh williamson or or someone else was like okay so i'm writing batman this week you know like that just seems to make sense to me from a traffic perspective mm-hmm. and I, I wish i wish there was more of that Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, I I do too. Although I think it it's one of the things that is rough is I feel the as it's changed so much of various aspects of the American superhero industry, you know, the trade paperback system really uh, has demolished that as being a thing, you know, because unless you say that, but, but again, look at what 2000 AD does. So, well, I mean, uh, I had a ton of qualifiers in there about the American comic superhero. Yeah. But I mean, that's what I mean. Like, I, I feel, I feel like your model literally exists to argue against that. Okay. Uh, and part of it is, I mean, I'm trying to look right now as to when the 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 um, Guatemala collections out. But um, let's see. Like a few months from now, I think, right? Yeah, June. June. Okay. Yeah. So in June, there's a collection coming out called Judge Dread Guatemala. And it is collecting a strip, a lead strip by John Wagner. But the entire collection is written by John Wagner. And it's essentially... The lead strip that is, I think, seven or eight chapters, and then the other recent Wagner stuff. Hmm. Okay. So, like, I don't see why you couldn't just do more of that. Uh, Control again is is a storyline that is Rob Williams and Chris Weston, and the rest of the book is Rob Williams and Chris Weston. Well, I guess I guess what I'm saying is, is for example, example in in the case of. James Tinian going off and I suppose you're right you could have Joshua Williamson do a six issue arc I guess and that's kind of what happened with uh in Tom King's Batman right or no is that he, the button he, yeah or... Williamson came in to do like the flash crossover and I think that was it right so you know you can I guess you can have that as long as you've got someone who's willing to walk in with a trade-worthy idea, but you're not going to get, say... But but I guess what I'm saying is, like, you don't have to have someone step in and go, I've got six, I've got six issues of a trade. You, you could have someone come in and do, like, a couple of issues, and then later do another couple of issues. Oh, I see. And so and you're then, saying, like, like those... three years later, you can collect yeah. the... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like, that seems to be a workable model to me, and you just call it, like, you know, Batman by Josh Williamson. Right, you know, and I and I think I think that's again I think that's doable, but again I don't work in comics, so what the fuck do I know? Well, that I mean, I, I, whether it's what what the fuck do I know? I do think that it's it's not being done in American strips, but there's there's a lot that's not being done in American strips. Graham, let that's, me tell you, that's definitely true. Yeah, uh, I um. Don't have actually a ton of comics under my sleeve uh, read or talked about, but I will say I was kind of stunned by reading um, two DC digital first titles that came out, I think this week, that were in, in the DC Universe Infinite lineup. Uh, Sensational Wonder Woman number one, and Truth and Justice, number one. And they each suffer from huge, huge problems. The one that I find more um, unforgivable, I guess, is Truth and Justice is a uh, the first part of a Vixen story with some really lovely uh, crisscross art. But what is 
um, kind of nightmarish is DC has been doing comics in the digital first format for what, like five plus years now or something like that. Right. And so the, the thing that bummed me out is on the one hand, sensational wonder woman for the most part was designed for the DC digital format, which is to say in, you read it in landscape mode on your tablet and it's usually set to be, you know, two panels per screen, you know, a quote-unquote half page. The The problem was they were giving the, uh, like, I think it's Megan Hetrick who does the art for Sensational Wonder Woman, and she's she's not quite ready for prime time. There's the occasional panel that looks okay, but there's stuff where I'm like, oh, this is just, this is this is not this is not good like you can slap color on this but this is not this is not ready you know and then the flip side with truth and justice is you have art by crisscross that is pretty gorgeous looking but clearly was drawn uh as if it was going to be a regular you know print comic and so there are pages where balloons float off the bottom of the page and then the next quote-unquote page is the bottom half of the panel with that balloon and the background you know so you've got people you you literally have the top of one page being the bottom of the previous page you were looking at like it's clearly just completely it's not it wasn't spell checked like they they screwed up like on the very first page they misspelled rampant um you know the emblem is rampant and it was r-a-m-p-e-n-t and then they spell it correctly on the next because of course i'm like i guess it's just an alien word oh no somebody's spell check went wrong or something happened you know and i'm like dude this is this is like a this is like a DC comic book, and this is a DC comic book in a program that has been running for a long time. Like I kind of had that moment of like, what what the fuck is going on here? You know, like I I I, I don't want to. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of like the, the page layout, that they've always been doing that. That is not new to this. Well, no, it's from, not, but it's still stuff. happening. Like yeah, I'm no, shocked. It's, it's, it's it's the way they do it. It it makes no sense to me. It makes no sense to me. You look at them like uh, it was true of. I mean, it's been true of all of DC's digital first books. But like Injustice Year One just finished recently, and Injustice Year One is full of that, where you can see that you know it oh, was drawn as a print page, right? Right, and and should be a print page <sighs> because. The, you know, the, they're they're artificially splitting it up, and there's no reason why that's the case. I've never understood why they do that. Yeah, I don't. But I don't that's, either. That's nothing new. That's literally nothing well. New. I guess for me, what was rough was spending the first year or two years um, reading Sensational Wonder Woman uh, when it when you know in its first digital incarnation and uh, maybe the Superman issues, various issues of the Superman series, and there were certain some of them you got the sense of like the 
for the most part, it worked. There was, I, I don't even remember, I remember certain cases where things were screwed up, but generally, it sort of makes sense to me that you're just kind of like, okay, you're telling this story, it's going to be published in digital first, you can't have a full page spread. You know, like you've got to think in different demand. You could basically have to tell widescreen comics. You've got, yeah, you've got to think in different dimensions. Yeah. yeah, you just you just have to do it differently. And the the fact that they don't, and yet this is a program that they put forward as a thing that they're doing, you know, and have done and show off as like, hey, it's DC. We do different digital comics every, you know, day of the week. I'm like, why why don't you? format them correctly why don't you put that on there like it's not sort of it just it just boggles my mind it's kind of like hey welcome to dc dumpster you know like where we've got comics that we were going to decide to print on paper and then we decided eh, not enough people really wanted to read a vixen comic but you probably might so here check it out it's conveniently chopped into 18 certain sections to be able to get you through this you know, classic Gil Kane layout of a giant floating head. Enjoy, you know? It's just it's just kind of weird. Again, going from reading something, like Case Closed, you know, Inspector Conan, huge hit, written for kids, clearly, you know, but kind of a fun read if you're, you know, a sim- simple-minded guy like me. You know, they're, they're sort of good genre stories with with kids in them you know and it's sort of a weirdly kind of classic manga e type feel but just the extent to which you could do that and there's not the kind of ridiculous levels of showing your ass you know what i mean like there's just something that's really the american industry has just walked around with a plumber's crack for so long with either people telling it, never bothering to say like, hey, you got to pull up your jeans, your ass crack is sticking out, or them being like, I'm just too busy. I'm too busy. I got too much shit going on to tug up my pants. So, you know, it's, you're not seeing anything you haven't seen before, you know? I mean, honestly, I, I can't help but feel that there is, that latter one is, is, very present in Marvel and DC yeah. increasingly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because both companies are having to produce more for less, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, especially Marvel. Marvel's output is absolutely fucking insane, but DC is doing more digital output. And it, it's, I don't know. I feel like there is something there where it's, um, you you get things. I mean, one of the things I like in DC Universe is let them live. But let, let them live is literally just printing inventory stories. And honestly, one of the things that's crazy about let them live is there's stuff that I like about it. But I'm also like, they might as well have called it Stranger Things, Tales from the DC Vault that are about the show Stranger Things. Like... We're like six issues in, and there have been like three stories of heroes trapped in a gray pocket universe outside of time with like icky, creepy things happening. Like three times. Like the Green Arrow one, I think, was the best. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's only twice. Like I looked at yeah, one. Yeah, I, th- I think it is only twice. Nah. But, but still. Yeah, but still, but it, but it, you know. But again, these are stories that didn't see prints. Well, but yeah, and I mean, and some of them are just, 
I mean, some of them are dull, but some of them have got great art. Like, the, some of them are no, uh, and that's part of it. Like, part of me is like, this is really no worse. Like the Brian Hitch story that really cribs from Stranger Things. It's dull, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's that much more dull than... You know what I mean? Like, I'm just looking at it. I'm like, I don't know yeah, why but, this didn't get published. It, you know, in but... many cases, it, you know, this stuff probably didn't see print because it was fill-in stories that they didn't need. Right. Right? right? Mm-hmm. Like, all this is, is clearly inventory that they bought for series that, you know, are either no longer running or you can't run it anymore because it's so out of sync with the book. You know, like, Green Arrow was cancelled, like, what, two years ago? Right. Right. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I'll take your word for it. You could have... You told me that it was cancelled yesterday and I, I would have shut yeah, no, green You know, Teen Titans is, has been relaunched as an entirely different book, so they have to right. do something with the Teen Titans thing. You know, in fact, I think there's has it been two Teen Titans stories so far in the six issues? I think uh, it is. No, it's very confusing, it is, but it's, there's it's, the uh, Harley Quinn Suicide Squad story, there's the Batman John Paul Leon story, there yeah, is the, the Nightwing story. Nightwing story. The Teen Titans. Green Arrow, and then another Teen Titans. Oh, Kid Flash and Teen Titans. Like, I know that's kind of split in the difference. Flash? Yeah, it's Kid Flash. It is, it is, it is a Kid Flash story, you're right. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, depending on how you want to split it. But there is kind of a samey-sameness to it, you know? I, I, I mean, and it's sort of fine. Like, the art is pretty good. Like, seriously, uh, again, as someone who looked at Sensational Wonder Woman and was like, oh, I really was a shame that you couldn't get Emanuela Lupacino because she did an awesome job on that Teen Titans story and you'd be looking at much better material. Of course, I say that and maybe we'll find out that that artist was like, yeah, I had like nine minutes to draw that story. So, you know. Yeah, right. Like that, that's that's always that's always a possibility. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got to say it, it just the fact that it looks it. I don't know. So, Graham, there there is a little bit of the... For me, I'm like, American comics, why can't you get your shit together? You know, like, you've been around long enough. And I mean, is it just, it? you know, first it was the overproduction, then it was COVID with no production. And now they're back and they're, you know, like DC's producing less, but they, of course, also sacked everyone with any experience. So, you know, you're back to people who apparently don't know how rampant is spelled. Like, I, you know, I like... What's happening? Tell me. Tell me. I really like. Yeah, it could just be a typo. I mean, <laughs> Graham, it's on the first page. It's on the first page. There's one word alone. No, I'm just saying. Typos happen. Speaking of someone who's done a lot of typos in their life. Well, sure, happen. absolutely, because you write very quickly without an editor. And so, same with these people. I mean, you know, you do have an editor occasionally, I was but you say. know. I do have an editor, and like shit still happens. Yeah, shit still happens. But, but Graham, I, I guess I guess what I'm saying is, it wasn't like the rest of the story then went on to prove no, no, me I, wrong. I, I get what you're saying. You're yeah. like, it started off on a wrong foot, and it never got back on a better foot. I get, I do get that. I'm just yeah. like, t- like attack it for you didn't like the story as opposed to they misspelled a word. No, no, but I, but that's what I'm saying. It's not so much. Th- Kind of what I was saying with uh, what we were saying about 2000 AD is like they solved their air traffic control problems. And then 
that allowed the stories to get better. You could enjoy things, right? Like, and that's kind of what I'm saying is, is like, there is, you, it, it's the whole thing that DC used to do, kind of like you said, back in the Julie Schwartz years, back when DC was all about the editors, you know? And they were all like, yeah, you know, you peons, we dictate what you do and you like it, which is not awesome. And then later when Marvel was getting popular, they're like, I guess it's because their books are so ugly. But, you know, there there was a... But this, I mean, if you, if you have sloppy slapdash seat of the pants editing, you're going to have things that are like that clearly affects the product of the books. Like, you know, one of the lessons of the Dan DiDio years is having your editor in chief give you personal notes every issue about your Phantom Stranger miniseries is is not necessarily a good idea. Like, you know, because it turns out the story changes every goddamn issue. Like, there's no... It's just it's just a goddamn free-for-all mess. And I, don't get me wrong, I'm not... I'm barely, you know, reading enough on either side to say if that is, like, a widespread thing for both. But it just seems to me like the general gist of the standards for basic product does doesn't seem terribly high at least right now and again there i guess i i'm aware there are reasons for it but but there are ways that i do think that it points to um problems that um if are if they're not resolved it kind of doesn't necessarily matter who's telling the stories or what kind of stories they're telling because it's it's easy for them to get tripped up right you know and again no, I, it's I, that yeah, thing of, I, I do i do get what you're saying it's funny because you know part of me is like i think i think that dc's books are better now than they've been in a while but i also totally get what you're saying you know, I, I feel like DC has put a lot of care and attention into what they see as their bigger books. And you, you definitely read more, so you would know. So that's great. I, you yeah, know, but also, but... like, A, taste is, is subjective, and B, that almost sort of sidesteps your, your point, right? Mm-hmm. Like, books can... I don't want to say books can be good despite the editors, mm-hmm. but... But I kind of mean that. Well, sure. Insofar as like, yeah. I'm going to like you know Tom Taylor's Batman book because I like Tom Taylor, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know that doesn't necessarily speak to a grand editorial vision of Batman. Arguably, if you look at the Batman line, you could you could argue the opposite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got what Tynan's doing. You've got what Tom Taylor's doing, which I guess is out of continuity question mark you've got is like, taylor doing like batman as well as nightwing i'm not he yes no he has a miniseries called batman the detective which let's just say two things one it was originally announced as batman the dark knight and i get why they changed the name but also if you're going to try and change the name to differentiate the book from a book that already exists maybe don't call the new title literally the other two ongoing batman books <laughs> We've got a series called Batman and a series called Detective. How do we differentiate this one? What do we call it? Batman colon the detective. 
mm-hmm. genius. That's that's a great idea. Right. Uh, but yeah, he's got a six issue mini that just started this week. Oh, uh, uh, I like a bunch. I really like a bunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's out of continuity. I genuinely don't know. Um, but you know, you've also got like the Batman Urban Legends stuff. It's it's. I I am at the point where I'm, I feel that the Batman line is stronger than it's been in a long time. But also, there are so many Batman comics that it's almost like. Sure, but maybe that's just law of averages. <laughs> if you've got ten books on the market, like if six of them are winners, yeah, okay. Oh, t- I, t- I think ten is understating. I could be wrong. Oh, is it really? Oh, Jesus God! How, how many? Hang on, I should look. DC. Now, do you mean Batman or Batman Family? Because that's. I mean by my family. Oh, okay. Well, then that makes sense. That totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, in terms of Batman books that are that are happening right now, like ones just centering around Batman. There's Batman. There's Detective. There's Batman the Detective. Um, is that it? Just for Batman? No, there was that books? Batman, uh, the Chip Zdarsky one, the Untold. Yeah, but that's that is in theory a Batman family book because the the Chip Zdarsky story is really a Red Hood story. Mm, mm-hmm. It's basically Red Hood with cameos it, from Batman. It definitely well in the first part it looked like it could go either way, but I did not pick up the second issue. The second so. part is fairly solidly a Red Hood story. Red Hood story with a cameo yeah. from Batman. Mm. Uh, and maybe maybe because there's there's four more chapters to go, maybe it's going to switch and there's going to be more Batman than its issue. But I wouldn't bet on it. Um, yeah, it's it's I I want to say that might be it for only Batman books, but there's also Nightwing. Harley Quinn. Uh, what other titles are ongoing these days at DC? Uh, hmm. Oh, in the Batman family? Well, Batgirl's still yeah. being published. Um... Well, no, Batgirl's not being published. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah, shit. Batgirl's gone. Batgirl's now supporting character in Nightwing. Ooh. Oh. Huh. Well, I mean, I saw her pop up there, but... Cat, yeah, Catwoman's still being published. It, uh, really? Uh, Joel oh, Jones? It's not Batwoman. Yeah, Batman Catwoman, right? Yeah. No, but there is also Catwoman in addition to that. Really? Yes. Um, there is. I mean, very soon we've got the the we've got another six issue mini. We've got Garth Ennis's Batman coming soon. Oh right. Um, yeah, no, but like there, there's a lot of Batman books. Oh, there's the Joker, of course. There's the right. Joker. That on is there. a Bat Family book, if ever there was one. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a bunch. Like there's a bunch of Batman books out there now. Well, thank goodness Dark Metal really. And again, in terms really of digital, there's to... also the Batman. The next Batman is is a digital first, and there's Legends of the Dark Knight as well. Oh, oh there's really? Batman Scooby Doo Mysteries as well. Oh right. <laughs> well, which just started last week. I don't know if you know that, but Batman Scooby Doo Mysteries started last week. I did not know that it had started last week. That's really weird because I swear. Oh, I there's spent... Batman Superman as well, and Batman Black and White. I'm literally just looking down the list now. <laughs> yeah, a lot of Batman. there's a lot of Batman out there. <laughs> Oh, DC, like, ah, dark metal taught like, you I, nothing. I, 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 a chunk of, of DC's current line is Batman. And when I say a chunk, I mean, it might actually be as high as a third. I believe it. I believe it. I mean, there's gotta be, there's gotta be times where I, I, I wonder, I wonder, there, I wonder if someone's ever compiled the pie chart percentages by year of like, you know, 
how many DC titles were Batman related or had Batman in it, you know? I I feel it's got to be like the highest now it's ever been. If only because the line is so small now. Right. Yeah. Everything else is contracted uh, otherwise. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, we're we're really, we're really, really, really high up there. Which is interesting. Again, I tend not to think of you as much of a, a Bat fan, a Batman fan, a Bat fan. I, I honestly fan. tend not to think of myself as one either. Mm-hmm. But, like, I'm really digging uh, Tamaki and Moore's detective a bunch. I really like the Tom Taylor Batman. I, uh, I really like Tom Taylor Nightwing, for that matter. Yes, Tom uh, Taylor Nightwing, I, I am. I think Joker's kind of fascinating. Uh, yeah, sure I like it. Right. You were very tossed up about the first issue, so... The second issue uh, went different directions, or same direction, or uh, you, you're still on the fence. It's the same direction. That direction is like this is really interesting, but I don't know if I like it. Hmm. Like it's it's an interesting direction to go in with a Joker series. Really oddly, really oddly, you know what it reminds me of, and I feel that it maps to what the 1990s Eclipso series by Whoa. Giffen and Bart Sears. And Bar Sears. Whoa. Huh. You may or may not remember that the long-running plot of that was Eclipso took over a, a South American country. Uh, I while, did not While remember. Bruce Gordon was basically coming up with a team to take him down. Right? Uh, right. So Joker is hiding in a South American country no. while Jim Gordon is putting together a team to take him down. What? Really? Yeah. Weird. It's really weird. Wow. I, 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 and again, I don't know if it's intentional or just this weird thing. Um, yeah, it's 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 odd. Like I think I'm enjoying Batman Catwoman. I can't really tell. I know that of all the Tom Kings going on right now, it's like really the one I'm enjoying the least. Oh really? Uh between that, Strange Adventures and Rorschach? Yeah. Yeah. That's three books. Wow. Uh yeah, I mean it's like what three issues in four issues in it's four issues in okay so i mean as a as a lapsed batman reader what what's a what's a what's it like does is it very much in the same is it is it like picking up those fabled last eight issues of batman i can believe it is it is those last eight issues of batman however to say it's picking up is not true. Do you remember the Batman annual he did that was like a flash forward to like old? Oh yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So it's a sequel to that essentially. Uh, in it, that it's set in the future, or it, it's set in the future and also set in the present day and also set in the past. Ah, okay. There are three overlapping timelines, uh, and even within those timelines, he cheats. Oh, nice. <laughs> A yeah. somewhat complicated uh, narrative to follow mm-hmm. to an extent. Um, but there is a future where Batman is dead and Selina is basically taking care of business and their daughter is... Uh, I want to say that she's Batwoman. I could be wrong. She might be calling herself Huntress, but she's definitely wearing a Batman outfit. Um, there is the present day, which is uh, the Phantasm from the, the old movie. Uh, is, yeah. Is the, what villain mm-hmm. and then there is stuff in the past beyond that that is sort of joker focused it's it really should be called uh batman catwoman joker as well 
Oh, really? It is clearly a Joker story, as much as it's a Batman and Catwoman story. Huh. That is something I did not know. And I have to say, as as long-time listeners may remember, uh, I I actually quite liked uh, how King handled Joker most of the time in the Batman series. So that's kind of semi-alluring. Uh, I I'm not I don't know if you'd like it, and I I uh, I suspect you would appreciate it more than like it if that makes sense. I I think that does make sense. I yeah. I, th- I think there's things that you would admire or things that you'd be like, well, that's very interesting that he's doing that. But I'm mm. not sure if you'd like it. Mm. Hmm. Um, and as I said, like for me, it's the least successful of the three books he's got going on right now. Um, I think Strange Adventures is great. I'm really enjoying Strange Adventures. And I think Strange Adventures is going in odd places that I appreciate. Rorschach, you know, I, I told you about this week's issue of Rorschach. Oh, <laughs> yes, you did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, Rorschach is nuts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rorschach is a genuinely odd book uh, in a way that I really appreciate. Uh, having Frank Miller show up as a character, and not only that, as a character who seems to think that he's Rorschach, is honestly one of the least interesting things that the book is doing. Wow. Um, and But both Rorschach and Strange Adventures feel incredibly like King is doing the thing that he's been done in other books, which is he's almost doing automatic writing. Like right. he's not filtering himself, mm-hmm. but that he's specifically writing about the political landscape of the last two years. Like they feel, I mean, very, 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 very much responses to like the last two years of the Trump presidency. Sure, I can see that. Um, and and in ways that are still interesting, even as to be blunt, like I I I, I find a lot of. I find the idea of a lot of that art to be exhausting, if that makes sense. Like uh, I feel like I, I I feel like I am I am already preemptively exhausted by seeing people's <laughs> you know yes. this is my grand theory on on the Trump years right art, but there's something about the the messiness of what King's doing and the ways in which King is doing it. Uh, in both these books. I think it's incredibly obvious in Rorschach, and I think it's less so in in Strange Adventures. Strange Adventures also is clearly being filtered through him working through, honestly, the response people have had to him in the last few years. Um, Strange Adventures is, is uh, to me at least, as much about people people's response to their idea of Tom King as it is anything else. Well, that definitely seemed very true in the first issue, like heavily so. And, you know, I am way behind, but I do read the issues as they hit DC Universe uh, Infinite. Um, So, which I think means that I'm at issue four or five. And... Uh, it it almost for me has a certain um, tales of Shahrazad kind of feel to it. Like every time I'm like, okay, I'm gonna give this one more issue, and then I'm probably gonna stop reading. And then I'll read that issue, and they'd be like, eh, hmm, I think I like that. Maybe I'll give it one more issue. You know, but I can't. I'm curious what you think when you get to issue six, right? Which is 
probably two months away or something. So. Yeah, issue six is 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 the one where he. Uh, it's not like he goes for a broke or anything, but he basically posits something that has yet to play out, but more importantly, has yet to be rebuffed. That uh, is genuinely surprising to me. Hmm. Um, and if he follows it through, is going to be really, really interesting. Hmm. And, I, and I, 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 I'm willing him to follow it through. Because mm-hmm. one of the things, and I, you know, I'm not going to say what it is, but one of the things that I, one of the things I really like about Strange Adventures is the idea that Adam Strange is, um, is in the wrong, for want of a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Adam Strange has has an extraordinary ego about what he's done, and and almost a self righteousness, and and Alana especially. Alana is feeding this self-righteousness for him. Mm-hmm. But the idea that everyone's suspicions about him are well-founded and that he is very much not what everyone thinks he is 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 where I want the story to go. Mm-hmm. You know? And so that's that's where I want to... And, and in, in the sixth issue, he he seems to like... He definitely hints that that's where the story is going. Right. Do you think that... Hmm, are you worried about the character... Well, I guess it's the same thing as Mr. Miracle. It kind of doesn't really matter if it's in continuity or not. Yeah. Right? I'm, yeah. I'm not, I'm not worried about the character surviving or coming out on skates because it's... Because it's a fucking comic character. <laughs> Right. Do you know well, what I mean? Like, sure. like they, like they can come out of this, and like, Strange Adventures can end with Adam Strange being like, "By the way, I'm, you know, I slaughtered a million children, and all it takes is for someone to come along and be like, that was the Adam Strange of Earth, Dick.'" <laughs> now, here's the real Adam Strange, and he's explicitly anti-killing kids. Do you know what I mean? Like, sure, it's sure. it's one of those. Like, I do, I do think that you can damage a character to such a degree that you can't pull it back right but i don't necessarily think that like one story can do that and i especially don't think that um i don't think that something like strange adventures can do that you know i think you i think you can i think if they want to they can bring mr miracle back and completely ignore what happened in the king grad series oh yeah i, and I think that's, and that's very fine. easily do you know what I mean? yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so right. I, th- I don't see why you can't do that for strange adventures as well Sure, sure. In fact, in a way, it would almost be more surprising if continuity picked it up and acted like it had happened. Yeah, I, I honestly, like, what's been happening in the series, I'm like, it has to be out of continuity. Like, there's an alien invasion happening. <laughs> right. That's never been referenced anywhere else. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure, I'm sure, that, like, they're just going to be like, no, this... Also, it's Black Label. I'm pretty sure Black Label is, like, explicitly... These things aren't in continuity. Right, right. Long silence. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something. I feel like I've been talking a lot. You have been. You have been, Graham and Camilla, and it's been wonderful. It's been a it's been a tonic. Oh listen, I have talked about Geiger. Oh yeah. Le- you definitely gotta talk about Geiger, which you 
did tell me about and pretty much said, like, I kind of want you to read it, but I don't want to put you through that. But guess what? Jeff put himself through it. I did buy did the you? first issue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was okay. like, Jeff. Yeah. I I really want to know what you think, because as I told you before, it felt like Doomsday Clock, but without any of the DC stuff. Huh. You know, do you it, get that or not? I did. Well, yes, I like, actually. I, I, I explicitly mean like the the weird, like self-important tone, and yet the idea that nothing is actually happening in the comic. You know, I, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because uh, the first three or four pages, in particular, felt super layered with stuff, and then there's a text page or two which has things that in in other words it definitely feels like if nothing else John's picked up a certain amount of like, like you walked out of doomsday clock being like oh i kind of like this way that you seed your story elements via background tv and you you throw in like five or six and it's a challenge to you know for the reader like is this going to be meaningful is this going to pay off um, honestly, uh, Geiger was really, really fucking dopey. Um, and there were parts of it that I thought were, um, I, I kind of feel like, I feel like Jeff Johns is, is, has hit his Kanye West stage. I'll, I'll say that, you know. Oh, please, please unpack that. Well, uh, um... I would say... Because that could be taken a couple of ways. Oh, yes, it could. Uh, I I think I think that uh, for me, what I would say is, is that on the one hand, it is most definitely not uh, Kanye West, the, the part that most interests me, which is the sort of level of combination narcissism self-loathing and and self-identification as an artist that allows you to get really unfettered access to his soul like it's kind of the opposite of that here in that i feel that john's is being if there's any kind of level of anything in which john's is personally invested in this it is at the level of near nearly utter disingenuousness but i will say that one of the things that kanye west has that this made me think of was almost a breathtaking audacity to sample and to sample multiple reference points and mix them at the same time like the thing that i found interesting about geiger is how much the part that is kind of the most boring is the this is the way we live now kind of aspect of the book um that opens up the the the, the idea that you have a survivalist who sees the missiles going off and and moves his family into the bunker and in the process of trying to get the dog in the bunker gets shot by the survivalist neighbors who are like you know tell your family to open the door and let us in or we'll blow you away and he's like i'll never never everything i do is to protect my family and then they're like well then we're gonna kill you and you know that that stuff is really shit um but the the audacity (laughs) of 
remixing the Hulk, some outrageously unsubtle Watchmen uh, call-outs, and um, Stephen King? Like, there's a weird, like, honestly, if you had taken the credits off of this and swapped it in with a bunch of comics and been like, okay, pick the Joe Hill comic out of the pile, I'm like, oh, it's, it's clearly this. It's clearly this. Everything about Geiger is weirdly, to me, is, again, there's a weird Stephen King-ishness to this idea of, you know, even beyond the idea of like, oh, I'm going to take Scott Snyder's, like, post-abandoned America idea, but I'm going to do it, like, totally different, and here's a post-apocalyptic you know, Las Vegas, and I'm going to throw in, like, the the child bastard king from Game of Thrones, but I'm also going to pack it. Like, it's just, it's just such a, a weirdly, again, kind of in that weird way that when you l- can listen to Kanye West and you're like, that's a Bon Iver falsetto over an Aphex twin sample with Chris Rock doing a skit while Kanye does something like you know you just find yourself being like wow that's that is such an audacious um blend of 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 pop culture you know like it really is in in that in a weird way that feels that I don't want to say feels in any way it's it's the opposite of original, but somehow kind of all but I found sort of almost semi-charming for how transparently oh, no. tasteless it is. Dude, seriously, Geiger is a stupid fucking comic, but it's a stupid oh, no, fucking I... comic that that kind of, I don't want to say comes by it honestly, but ends up moving into that realm of... It's so bad. It's entertaining. Like it's a it's a fucking trashy read. But oh, at... I, Geiger Geiger feels like uh, someone read Undiscovered Country by right. Charles Sewell and yes. Snyder. Yeah, and then thought no needs more. Uh, hmm, what needs more Hulk? Needs and needs more Hulk. A, needs more Spawn. Yeah, I mean, the Doomsday Clock, I mean... But again, see. like, it also ends up reading, like, the last scene mm-hmm. very much reads like a real... I said this to you, like, off off the podcast last time. Very much reads like a... a he's just rubbed off his Atomic Knights, like the... the oh, yeah. Atomic Knight reboot. Right, right. Like... What what the like I it's it's so funny you sort of like comes by honestly and I, my first response was this book comes by fucking nothing honestly well no exactly but this how do I put in every single piece of its DNA but unlike you I don't think it's put together in a way that is honestly even interesting see like I... the, the most interesting things yeah. for me mm-hmm. is seeing like it feels it feels like I can see. John's sweat in his attempt to do something "quote unquote" different, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and for that matter, you know, sweat in the attempt to do something "quote unquote" important or meaningful, uh, like the, the scene 
before mm-hmm. the, the 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 bomb goes off, mm-hmm. where the the survivalist's fate is you know deals with with the neighbors who are like you know we're gonna fucking get in there ourselves is and and especially with the line probably his people that started this oh yeah uh, you know was not only clunky but felt desperate oh completely completely you know it it's 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 just oh i i did not think it was a good comic jeff oh i know know, i'm not saying that it's a good comic i'm not saying it's a good comic I'm kind of happy that you got something out of it. <laughs> I, I mean... I was like, how? I, I, I mean, getting something out of it is sort of a weird... I mean, it's 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 not Bob Haney, good, bad. It's nowhere close. Oh, God, no. You, no, I mean, it's probably closer to, you know, tarot uh, or, you know... What is what is Tarot's oh, full term? Yeah, was the that, Jim Ballant book. Tarot, Witch of the Black Rose. Am I making? There that we up? go. Thank you. I was like Tarot, Witch of the Tarot. No, that can't be right. Wait, was her name Rose? But yeah, exactly. Like it's it's kind of closer to that level of it, but I don't know how to describe it. Like, but even that had some weird like artistic purity that this doesn't. Again, I'm talking about fucking Tarot. Yeah, yeah, no, I know, I know, and and I think, like, I think that I can see myself, I don't see myself spending more money on this, but I can definitely see myself uh, checking the trade out of Hoopla when it gets on there and reading it, because it's, um, I mean, maybe it'll go somewhere, I'm sure it, it, part of me is like, like, all this stuff that Seated doesn't seem like it's going anywhere good but graham i'm i'm kind of surprised because part of me is like this totally reads like a 1970s dc comic that would have been canceled after six issues or or really in a way like a dc comic from just about any generation you know any decade after uh, the seventies after that would have been canceled after six issues. Like it's oh, it, just it's one hundred percent like you know the backup strip in an issue of Hex from nineteen eighty three. Oh, totally, totally right. It's the work of someone who has heard of but never read two thousand AD. Who's like, oh, this is science fiction. Yes, which is to say, like it strikes me as many many uh, a soul uh, who was writing for DC in the 70s or 80s like you said if Jeff Johns is entering his Michael Fleischer period I'm all there for it and that is someone who did not read Fleischer at 2000 AD but I just think like sort of his very just the fact that Geiger has like about six different nicknames you know I mean like you said it reads like Atomic Nights it also kind of reads like Radioactive Spawn you know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, this is the one Spawn story Todd McFarlane can't tell post-apocalyptic Spawn, you know? And I, again, I'm like, that's just trash. That's just trash. But I did find it kind of, um, I found it weirdly charming because of how, because of how craven it was. Like, it was really dramatically um I, I it it it's dramatically cynical but it's kind of like um 
it's kind of like when a child is trying to swindle you. You know what I mean? Like there's just something <laughs> that is somehow deeply charming about it because there's there it's it's so it it watching someone try to be so um spiritually bankrupt and fail because their conception of um you know, good and evil is about an inch and a half deep. Like, there's something kind of like, ah, oh, you crazy kids. You know what I mean? So, yeah, well, but, I mean... But, I mean, that's honestly one of the things that reminded me so much about uh, Doomsday Clock. Mm. Right? Doomsday Clock is... It's attempting to be morally deep and morally complex. Oh, very much without so. Actually, having that depth or complexity? No, nothing close to it. Absolutely, right? and yeah, that's yeah. that's very similar to Geiger. Geiger, <sighs> Geiger. Do you not think Geiger desperately wants to be like doing something insightful? Not after and... the first six pages. Like by the time you get into the bunker and people get blown into atoms, and then the next thing you know, like people are walking around scavenging, looking for like stuff oh, no. to break I open. And God, I thought the last page reveal. That like the child king is in Vegas. I honestly thought that was meant to be some sort of like, do you get it? This is where consumerism takes us. <laughs> like I, 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 that's what I took away from that that reveal. I mean, I Just guess like, you. Could. Oh shit. <laughs> where is? Whereas, like, I was like, then you get that page of the Vegas Strip with all of these various different. Um, cause for me, I was kind of like, wait, this kid acting like he's a king and the old king. And I was like, this doesn't seem very American. You know what I mean? And then, and then when it pulls back and he's in Vegas and in, you know, the, the, you know, John's cowardly appropriation of, of the, whatever it's called, the new Excalibur casino, I was kind of like, Oh, and then he's got that little map of the strip, and he's got, like, his little thing that he loves doing, which is, you know, jotting cryptic names down there. And I'm like, Graham, I have to say, like, there is something to me so charming in the moral paucity of the vision that it it was like, oh, yeah, like, it's like that map of Kirby and Commandy, the world after the Great Disaster, but like Jeff Johns can only really work up enough um quote unquote invention to cover like six blocks of Las Vegas. You know what I mean? But I kinda <laughs> had that thing of like, oh my like if ever there is going to be a comic in the twenty first century that is going to recreate the Kirby tropes of here's a villain that's got an enormous head. Here's a villain that's got one metal hand and he's going to show how tough he is by breaking a table in half with a karate chop. It's fucking Jeff Johns' Geiger. Like, he's got, like... What's, what's great is you're saying that and I'm honestly like, you wash your fucking mouth out. <laughs> <laughs> you take that back, you monster! So, yeah, I mean, it probably won't, but I just, you know, like, I kind of had that thing of, like, holy shit, like, wouldn't that be amazing? Like, there's just this thing where he's like, yeah, there's, like, nine different villains, and they're all vying for Vegas, and I'm like, boy, that's so fucking stupid. Like, I really just walked out of Geiger being like, this is really stupid, but at least it was stupid in a way that, again, I found kind of like, huh, 
yeah, okay. I mean, that's dumb as shit in a way that I sort of want to read as opposed to Jeff Johns is like, what if they were Ghostbusters but from the Catholic Church? Then I'm just like, who gives a shit? Or whatever his previous like image series was, you know? Like, I'm just like... This is, this, it's so stupid. And I get, uh, don't get me wrong, I'm in no way saying like, hey, people go spend money on this. But yeah, like, when it's a fucking hoopla borrow, or if it ends up in Comixology Unlimited, I'm like, even better if it ends up being one of those image books that, you know, drops on day and date on hoopla. Oh man, that would be great. So... This is great. It's like, I'm, I'm like saying all this and like next issue is probably going to be called like, I don't know, Child Rapers of the Sunset Strip. And I'm like, oh, oh, I really backed the wrong horse here. Oh, no. So. How, how did you know that's that's what the solicitor issue is? Well, see, that's it. You would think that, Jeff, like that's the like. I hate the fact that we have a comic book podcast that involves such things as you literally telling me what comic books are currently being published. I'm like, mm, that is like, we, 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 we definitely wax and wane. I remember at one point where commentators were like, yeah, I really love the part of the podcast where Graham explains to Jeff how comics work nowadays. And then, and then Jeff sort of talks nostalgically about whatever Spider-Man comic from the 70s he reread um okay i i just have to say i looked up the solicit for um <laughs> issue three. okay i let me just tell you it's amazing yeah it's amazing it's the point where i am almost ready to be like maybe you're right about the kirby comparison are you ready yeah how do you make a monster okay tragic geiger's tragic origins revealed from his time before the war to his fateful meeting with are you ready the doomed Dr. Molotov. <laughs> All secrets will be laid bare when the king of Las Vegas invades Geiger compound. Dude! Called it! No, I don't know if I called it or not. But yeah, Dr. Molotov! Like, holy shit! A rhetorical <laughs> question at the beginning. I mean, seriously, if you put that stuff in Kirby font and put it in a yellow box at the end of the at the end of the issue, how do you make a monster? Question mark. Question mark. Question mark. Oh my god. Um. Yeah. No, no, for real. I read that. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the rape gangs are, are issue four. <laughs> found it this is issue two they found it the atomic wasteland a relic from before the war but what is it a tool to bring hope back to humanity or a weapon to finish what the bombs started depends who on who gets it the casino warlords of las vegas or the man called geiger dude honestly again you're like shit am i into this I, I, a i think i'm into it and b again part of me is like that sounds way closer to Kirby. That sounds yeah, there way is, a, closer. What's really funny is like, I don't think that's backed up by the comic at all. I've got to read issue once to listen out to see if that also sounds like Kirby and if it's just crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's kind of, it's, oh boy. Okay, so no. Yeah. Um, set in the years after a nuclear war ravaged the planet, desperate outlaws battles for survival in a world of radioactive chaos. Out past the poisoned wasteland lives a man even the nightcrawlers and Oregon people fear. Some name him Joe Glow. Others call him the Meltdown Man. But his name is Geiger. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, that sounds good. Yeah, no, no. Well, but that was also the stuff where I was like, the whole Joe Glow thing, which is so... Uh, and the Meltdown Man, I'm like, this is, this is, like... This is very much like Jeff Johns read The Fireman and was like, oh, okay, oh, I get it, I get it, I get it. I, I can do that. I can do that, exactly. I can totally rehash Stephen King, but in ways that, like, got it. Like, all you need to do is give your, your main character, like, three nicknames, one of which is kind of goofy, and you're, you're there. You're like in the zone. You don't even have to drop a bunch of name brands or something like that, or have a have a fat man spill food down the front of his shirt. Although that is going to be my page opener for issue five, you know. But I'm just like, yeah, sorry, Graham. I mean, we'll see how these things work out. But issue two and issue three, those solicits, I'm like, I they actually um... okay. They actually sound good. Shit, that's <laughs> shame because I hated issue one I know with you a patch. <laughs> But those solicits were great. To the point where I'm like, am I now going to fucking read this? I know, I know, you're fucking me? doomed. I hear you. You you were you were so pissed. It's kind of I, great. I, I, I actually am pissed. I'm not gonna lie. I'm, I'm gonna have to fucking read these comics <laughs> just to see if they live up to it. That's the truth. I'll read issue two, and if issue two does not live up to that, then right. I'll give up. You're just but like if fuck it. Does, yeah. I'm just fuck yeah 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 right i i I mean that's the thing i kind of think because because part of what i just i would be really shocked if they did it maybe they will i mean because because jeff johns like among other things like he he really he really you know he leans in on the wink and the nudge and also there's a lot for kirby that is you know, it's all about speed and velocity, and the first issue of Geiger was not that, you know. But, so part of me is like, yeah, I'll be surprised if they can do it. But part of me is like, A, I'm kind of worth, like, part of me is like, I, I some, there are times where I'm like, I will, as, as a man who's bought God knows how many copies of Prez number one, there's times where I'll settle for 70s Joe Simon if I can't get 70s Kirby. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So, and chances are good, it probably will be more like the former. You're like, you're like it's one of them. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like, for me, it's 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 like playing, uh, I don't know, stupidity roulette. Like, I, there's no way I can lose, you know. The house always but wins. It is, though, because that first issue is terrible. Oh, it really was. And I spent I, mean, I spent money there is on a it. Way you could lose yeah. Because it's terrible. <laughs> well, again, part of me is like, I don't think that I will be buying these like day and date. But uh like I said, hoopla, like arguably the only thing that I'm wasting is my time, which is really the only precious resource we actually truly have, you know. So I'm only wasting the most valuable thing that belongs to me, which is my life, Graham. So, so touche. Okay. That is 100%. Uh, and this is where we're up and up. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Oh, good Lord. Um, we are going to be back in uh, two weeks. We have an next week. That's off. right. Yep. Yep. 
uh, we're going to be back in two weeks with another episode of Wait What, and then after that, it's a drop. Even though I've just spent like a week reading like three years worth of dread, apparently there's dread. I, I, oh God, what have I done with my life? Uh, in it's the meantime, amazing. there will be show notes up uh, at waitwhatpodcast.com. I said I was going to post something on Instagram this week and I didn't, but you know maybe this week I really will. Instagram.com forward slash waitwhatpod. <laughs> uh, we have our Twitter account at Wait what podcasts? Jeff has a Twitter account at LazyBastard at L A Z Y B A S T I D, and I have a Twitter account at Graham M at G R A E M E M. And this is a Patreon supported podcast, which means Jeff is about to sing to you right now. Oh man, I think the last thing we need is singing. Although I don't know, there was something I was doing earlier today where I was like, oh, maybe I can work this into the podcast. Fortunately for all of us, I've forgotten it. Maybe singing next time, but I will. However talk about how awesome uh, our listeners are. Uh, I don't know if we address this on the podcast. I think we mentioned it on Twitter and elsewhere. Or no, I guess maybe we did it at the beginning of Drock. All of which is to say thank you again for such um, warm and generous reception that uh, you gave our special guest, uh, Chloe. Uh, I know Graham mentioned that she was heartened for it. Maybe those of you who don't listen to the Drock might have missed that, so I'll just throw it back in but basically yeah our listeners are the best i think it's great scientific tests have proven it um you continue to keep us uh inspired uh with your attentive listening your kind comments your gentle teasings and uh provocations on twitter uh, and then there are those of you on Patreon who do all of the same, but also uh, monetize that affection by throwing us a little bit of your hard-earned dosh. And believe me, when it comes to things like spending actual cash American dollars on something like Geiger Number 1, we're incredibly grateful for that. It really does allow... Um, just the absolute absurd levels of disagreement that you just heard between two, one would say, otherwise rational people, persons, um, to actually exist. So we thank you for that. We'd like to give a special shout out to Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, for her continuing support of this podcast. Nay, this very galactic realm, this firmament filled with fire and air, Graham. We, we thank you, Emperor Sakri. Graham? I mean, that was just amazing. You <laughs> <laughs> went the extra you went the extra seven, and it paid off. Thank you. Um, yeah, we're going to be back in two weeks. Otherwise, please enjoy uh, your week respite from us. Watch Below Decks. Apparently, it's a really good show. I don't know who's been saying that, but you know that, that, that's what you should do. It's all free in Peacock. Oh, what else are you going to do in Peacock? Actually, you should watch the Amber Ruffin show if that's... Yeah, never mind. Um, we're going to be back in two weeks. Otherwise, bye!